0: Our scripture reading today is Revelation chapter two, verses one through seven. Our reader is uh, C. O. Gerlach. In honor of God's word, uh, please stand.
1: Listen as I read to the angel of the church of Ephesus: Write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. I know how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. You have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove the lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord.
0: So last week we started a series... um, it's in the book of Revelation, uh, but it is actually focused on the seven letters that Jesus uh, gives or wrote uh, to, to the seven churches. And so last week we took just a couple minutes as kind of an intro, and so you recognize that often the, the, the basic response to Revelation can be uh, either confusion or fear. And uh, if you've um, uh, experienced one of those emotions, that like you'd you'd be you'd have some good company uh, with you. Whether you read you look at this book and you're like I don't understand anything in it, or you look at this book and it's it's scary, uh, it's it's a little it is a little complicated. And uh, and and yet, uh, the word revelation uh, is a a word that means revealing. And uh, and so God gave us this to turn the lights on. God God actually gave us this this book. Uh, in, in a sense, as an invitation for us to have a better picture of where the story of the world is headed, of what God is doing uh, in, in the world. And so while we may have confusion or we might be scared, um, God did give us this to actually help us understand. Uh, one scholar says that this is, uh, this is called apocalyptic literature and we're not very familiar with apocalyptic with literature, but the Jewish people, the original readers of this, would have been quite familiar. We're looking at literature. And, and one of the things that's important for us to remember as we walk through just the second symbol looking at is that ap- apocalyptic literature is often full of symbolic visions. Uh, symbolic visions that reveal a heavenly perspective on history. And so a lot of the reason why Revelation can feel confusing is because th- th- these, are, these are actual verbal pictures. If you read what John says, John says, I saw this. And so it's like John, John is like, in a sense, like watching a movie. And then he's sitting down with a pen and paper and trying to write out what it is that he saw. And so these are symbolic visions or verbal pictures that give a heavenly perspective on history in light of where it's going. on light of where this story uh, is headed. Uh, this, this book, we're told, is a revelation that's given by Jesus. It's given to an angel. That angel is then, it gives it to, to, to John, and then uh, down to us. And here we have it uh, in the year uh, 2022. Uh, it's apocalyptic. It's also prophetic. It's declaring a word for God, and it's a letter. It was written to a specific group of people, to real people, who read this uh, when, when John wrote it uh, about 2,000 years ago. Um, and so we're only dealing with these seven letters to the churches, but even in that section, we don't want it to ever get too far from us that Revelation is the final declaration that God keeps his promise to make the world right again. God, God, God is that, that, that history is headed in a certain direction. And the book of Revelation is reminding us of that direction, of where this story is going. So it might be complicated, uh, but we cannot finish the story that God is telling without it. And so it is a, it is a gift to us. Uh, today, we get the opportunity to look at the first of the seven churches. Um, and it, this, this church is the church in Ephesus. So if you have your Bibles, uh, Revelation chapter 2, those, those first seven verses is what we're going to take a look at. First, a little bit of just a real quick background, uh, a couple of details on the church in, in Ephesus. So verse two, or verse one says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right. So this is a letter from Jesus to the church in Ephesus. Uh, Ephesus was uh, a pretty influential place, uh, and it was influential mainly because it was a port city. And uh, if you're familiar with the history of the world, uh, port cities uh, are, are, I mean, having a port is a, is a huge, huge resource. Uh, there is a reason why New York City uh, became as big as it became, because the, the, the harbor that New York City, uh, that Manhattan, the island of Manhattan sits on, offers all kinds of water and space with protection from the ocean. And so that, that port, that harbor, it, the, the significance and the size of it opens up the incredible opportunity for trade and for shipping and for commerce to happen. And so throughout the history of the world, if, you're, if you, your city was on a port, it was like automatic credibility. It was automatic opportunity. And Ephesus was in a port city. Uh, they had, the, the church in Ephesus had well-known leadership, significant influence, um, names like Paul, who uh, as we read through the, the New Testament, we find out that Paul was, uh, was raised uh, in, in, in the faith of, of the Jewish people. He was highly trained, went to the best schools. Uh, he was a Pharisee. He was completely opposed to the message of Jesus. And then he has a radical conversion, and uh, he realizes that Jesus is the Messiah that the Jewish people have been waiting for. And instead of persecuting Jesus in the church, Paul becomes the biggest promoter of Jesus and the church. And he scatters all over the place, planting churches and, and, uh, and sharing the gospel in all kinds of places. And he had a significant uh, influence and, and, and uh, input on the church in Ephesus. Uh, Timothy, uh, there's two books in the New Testament written to Timothy. Uh, uh, helping us understand the significance of Timothy's ministry. He had uh, an impact with, with uh, Ephesus. Uh, and then Priscilla and Aquila, significant voices uh, in the New Testament. Uh, and so th- their leadership would have been known. They would have been, if it was our culture, it's like these are the people who write books. These are the people who speak at conferences. These are the people who write blogs and, and write articles. Th- their their leadership would have been known. So they're a church with a ton of potential that's in a strategic Location, And at this point in time, they've been around around for at least a few decades. Now, when Jesus writes these letters over the chapters 2 and 3, these seven different letters, every time that he says, here, write this down, every time he says that, he goes on to give a description of himself. And every time he talks about himself, he is in some way referring back to chapter 1. In chapter 1, we get this description, this vision of the Son of Man. That's what we talked about last week. And there's this discussion about who Jesus is and how Jesus is at work in his people. And so then as these seven letters unfold over chapters 2 and 3, each time Jesus pulls a little piece out of chapter 1 and says, this is how I want to describe myself to the church at Ephesus. This is how I want to describe myself to the church at Smyrna and all the way through. And so for this church, for the church in Ephesus, the description that Jesus pulls out of chapter 1 is he says, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So what does he pull from chapter 1? He pulls this idea that he holds the seven stars in his hand and he's walking among the lampstands. What does that mean? That, that can be really confusing. Well, we talked about it a little bit last week, Um, But what does it mean that he has the seven stars in his hands? Well, he goes on to tell us uh, at the end of the chapter, chapter one, he says that the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, this is verse 20, the seven stars are the angels. So Jesus, when he talks to the church at Ephesus, he says, I want you to think of me as the one who holds the seven stars in my hand, the seven angels. So Somehow, and obviously, remember, we said this is apocalyptic literature. There's a lot of figurative language. So what does it mean that Jesus holds seven stars in his right hand? Um, Well, it could mean the angels, like angels as in spiritual beings. Uh, the, The Greek word here is actually the word for messenger. And so when you see the word angel, it's usually the Greek word for messenger. And seeing that we are in apocalyptic literature and this apocalyptic literature is packed full of symbols and verbal pictures, it's possible that when Jesus used the term messenger, that he might not have meant the spiritual being angels. He may have meant the messengers to the churches, meaning the pastors in these churches. And so whether it's the angels or whether it's the pastors, when Jesus talks to the church at Ephesus, what he says to them is, they're in my hand. So whether there's some way a spiritual being called an angel that is given to each of the churches in a unique way, or he's talking to the pastors of those churches, Jesus says, I hold them in my hand. Think about the significance of that. He holds the leaders of their church in his hand. This might be even more fitting for Ephesus because of those notable leaders. That while the world... Even you know, the, the, the Christian world hears the name Paul or hears the name Timothy or Priscilla and Aquila. And they immediately perk up and say, "Well, like, what did they say? What did they say? Oh, They, they came out with a new book? I got to get their new book. Jesus says to the church in Ephesus, I hold them in my hand. I hold those seven stars. I hold those leaders. And if it's a spiritual being, an angel, still Jesus says, I hold them in my hand. And so if you think about it, that is both a comfort and and a reminder. It's it's a comfort in the sense that he, if you're, if you're the pastor and you're reading this, it's like, oh, I'm not not alone. I'm I'm not left alone. Jesus is is holding me. He's protecting me. He cares about me. He's guarding me. But it's also a, a reminder, maybe even a warning, that these leaders are not to be running the show any way they want. That Jesus is the one who's in control. That Jesus is the one who is to be holding them and guiding them and leading them in the way that he wants his church to be. And so these stars are not to go run off and do their own thing. They're they're actually uh, to to be held and guided by Jesus. And then he says, I'm the one who walks among the lampstands, the golden lampstands. And last Sunday we talked about this a little bit as well. But Jesus tells us in chapter 1, verse 20, that the seven lampstands, those are the churches. And so Jesus says, when I, talk to, when I write this letter to Ephesus, I want you to tell the, 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 the messengers that I, I hold the messengers in my hand, and I want the churches to know that I walk among them. And last Sunday, we got to spend a little bit of time with this. The, the affirmation that Jesus is present. That he walks among the lampstands. If the lampstands are the churches, it means that Jesus is right there with them. He is present with them. And the Bible, in so many other places, affirms this idea that Jesus was with them, the, the, these churches in the first century, and he is, he is with us here in the 21st century. That he, he is present, that he has not left his people alone, that he actually walks among his churches. He walks among his people. Now, before we jump into the letter that he actually wrote, just two uh, quick considerations. First, the use of numbers in apocalyptic literature. Okay, so the use of numbers in apocalyptic literature can be quite an adventure. They can be real, like they can be exact real numbers, like two means two, five means five. Like they can function that way, and that's good to know. But they often do mean something else, not a a secret code that you have to decipher, like the Da Vinci Code or something. It's it's not that, but they can function as some sort of a hint or as as a symbol. And a good example would be the numbers 7 and the numbers 12. And if you were to sit and read the book of Revelation, you'll see that not only is 12 used significantly, but multiples of 12 is used significantly. So 12 or uh, uh, 1,200 or 144,000. And so the, the, these, these numbers uh, actually are, uh, they, they, I'm not suggesting that the, none of them are real, but I'm saying they often are doing something else. And in our text here over these next few weeks, there are seven churches. And the number seven, it's a real number. There are seven churches. We get their names. We know their locations. But the number, why seven? Why, why did Jesus pick seven? And at least scholars believe that the reason, the most likely reason is, that this seven, uh, it, that's, that's the number that, that indicates wholeness or completeness. Think of the, the Sabbath cycle on the seventh day. And there, there is no eighth day. There's seven days. And then it, and then it restarts. It's this, it's this idea of completion or wholeness. And so in other words, why did Jesus pick seven churches? He picked seven. There's seven real churches in seven real locations with seven real pastors and seven real congregations that, that they exist. but why did he pick seven? Might, might it be that he's sending the message to us that this is a holistic picture? of what he wants his people to be. That if you took all seven of these letters and pushed them all together, that Jesus would be revealing to us what he wants his church to be and do in the world. That this is the, the complete picture, this is the whole picture of his people. Uh, and I, I love that word wholeness. You know, not, not balance. It's not balance, it's wholeness, it's fullness. Such a, such a beautiful, such a beautiful picture. So the use of numbers. And then second, uh, Jesus' vision. Um, th- th- we're going to see this in each of the letters, that Jesus sees these churches. He sees the people. And, you know, the, it's a legitimate question. What, what does he see? And you say, uh, you know, Jesus is looking at you. What does he see? Well, before we look at verses 2 through 7, would, would you be willing to sit with this for a second? What does Jesus see when he looks at you? What does Jesus see when he looks at Sojourn Church? Do you assume anything? Were well, there are some assumptions that immediately came to your mind? Are you immediately guilty? Oh no, Jesus is looking at me. This is bad. Is there an immediate sense of, of guilt? Is the main thing, maybe the only thing that comes to your mind... Is that Jesus would be disappointed with you? That Jesus would just be shaking his head? Or are you immediately comfortable? When you, when you think of Jesus looking at you, maybe you assume, oh yeah, we're, we're, everything's good. Jesus doesn't nitpick. Jesus isn't worried about my little you know, mistakes. He's not worried about that stuff. He's, he's, he loves me. He, he just you know, He just hugs me. None of that's, th- those, those details, they don't matter to him. Is, is that an assumption? See, so, some of us would have the tendency of making Jesus too simple, of making him one or the other, of making him either somebody who's ready to condemn me and him looking at me is only bad news, or others who would say, no, Jesus is, is he's all about love and him looking at me is only good news. Him looking at me is just going to result in a high five. Would you be willing to open up your categories on Jesus? Would you be willing to, to more deeply consider who Jesus is and what he's about? You know, multiple times in the Bible, we have this invitation that if we seek him with all our heart, then we get to find him. But, but that means that we actually do. We pursue him. We seek him. We, we look and we, we don't come with, with all, of our, uh, all of our T's crossed and I's dotted. We actually come as learners. We come, come with open hands. We come with open hearts. And these letters to the churches invite us into a consideration of Jesus that is not one dimensional. It actually opens up this reality of how it is that Jesus interacts with his people. Don't be so ready to put a bow on your current understanding or your opinion of Jesus. So, what does Jesus say to this church in Ephesus? Well, he starts with an evaluation. In verses 2 through 4, and we'll throw verse 6 into this section as well. Jesus' evaluation. So Jesus starts off in verse 2, and he says, I know your works. And there we go, right? The gaze of Jesus. He is looking at the church in Ephesus. As I said just a second ago, do you think that Jesus looking at you, looking at your church, looking at the church in Ephesus, is a good thing or a bad thing? Well, it's a good thing here. Jesus looks at their church. He says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So, verses two and three, it's this this commendation where Jesus looks at them and he says, I know your works. And I've got so many good things to point out. I've got so many things to celebrate. Jesus starts his commendation with, I know your works. And then Jesus says more encouraging things to Ephesus. He's going to critique them too. But he says more encouraging things to Ephesus, who he will critique, than he does to Smyrna and Philadelphia, other churches, that he doesn't critique at all. So Ephesus, Jesus looks at Ephesus and he sees these things that he wants to celebrate and he starts with these things that he wants to honor and rejoice in and and, and like praise, offer praise to them, celebrate them, recognize the way that they're navigating the world. So please do not allow yourself to believe that Jesus is always shaking his head at you. That is a distorted view of who Jesus is and how he interacts with his people. Jesus sits with his church and he looks at him and he says, I know your works and let me tell you about them. Let me, let me tell you what I see. Here's what I see. I see your toil. I see your patient endurance. I see your stance against false teaching. In verse 6, he, he pulls in this, this, this other group and he, he says that the way you're interacting with that group, like I, I give a thumbs up to that. They were committed to God. This church was not flaky. And Jesus sees that they're not flaky. Jesus sees that they're committed, that they that toil and patient endurance, this, this uh, stance against false teaching, this toil and patient endurance. If you think about those categories, what, what does that tell you? That they, they've had some tough stuff going on and that they have hung in there. In, in these few verses, Jesus mentions endurance twice. He mentions bearing up twice. And then he says, and you've not grown weary. You know, maybe a more famous verse in the, in the New Testament is when Paul writes to the Galatian church, do not grow weary in doing good. And when Jesus looks at the church at Ephesus, he says, you, you, you've gone through it, man. Toil. You, you, you've, you've had to have patience so it wasn't a flash in the pan. It's an extended trial. You, you've been through some really, really hard things. You have toiled, you've had patient endurance, and you have not grown weary. They have suffered, and they have endured. And Jesus sees it, and he celebrates it. And he says, pretty noble, pretty noble. Like, way to go, church. Good job. And there's some very real ways in which when I look at Sojourn, or when you look at Sojourn, there's some some stories that, that this is true of. And maybe you're a person who's living out one of those stories right now. Not a flash in the pan, not an overnight trial, extended trial, trial over the course of months, years, decades, maybe your whole life. Jesus looks at you and he sees the toil and he celebrates your patient endurance. A word that we might use in our culture to describe the church in Ephesus might be faithful. It's one of the ways that we kind of use the word faithful. Is They've been a faithful church. Endurance. They have held the line. Another descriptor that we might use is truth. That they were a truth church. So we get these indications here that they took stances against false teaching. That there were these people who were putting themselves up as apostles the church in Ephesus didn't just let them say that. They investigated that. They tested that. And they found out that they were false. That, that actually they weren't in line with the apostles' teaching. And they called, they called wrong, wrong. They called, they called false, false. And they were willing to say it. In verse 6, we find out that there was this group called the Nicolaitans. And we don't know a ton about the Nicolaitans, but what it does seem to be, uh, what, what scholars do think they know about the Nicolaitans is that they were teaching that some of the sexual practices that were widely accepted in, in Ephesus were acceptable for the followers of Jesus to continue to do. One of them would be temple prostitution. And then the Nicolaitans were within the church saying to other Christians, oh, it's okay to keep doing that. And the church in Ephesus stood up to the Nicolaitans and said, no, that doesn't align with God's good design. That that isn't the way of Jesus. And so they called wrong, wrong. They called evil, evil. And they were not afraid of the cultural cost. Jesus commends them for taking a stand. He commends them for uh, confronting what was wrong. Take some courage to do that. It took some courage for them to do that in the city of Ephesus where there was uh, significant idol worship and there was significant uh, cultural pressure to align with the current standards. We can relate to that some in our current culture. We we can recognize the potential cultural cost of taking a stand that is not in line with the current culture. And look, in in so many ways, it's the current culture. But if you've committed yourself to Jesus then you're letting Jesus be the Lord of your life. And now you align with his good way. And so this church is saying, if you have called Jesus Lord, that's no longer in line with the life that he's called you to live. And they took the stand. And Jesus sees them take the stand. And Jesus commends them for taking the stand. But he also confronts them. And here's the confrontation. The confrontation comes in verse 4. He says, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. I want you to notice, some, some translations uh, translate this a little bit differently. It's not just that they lost it. It's that they abandoned it. And the Greek here is really clear. They, they have forsaken it. They have, they, have, they, have, they, have, they have walked away from it. Now, John does not elaborate on exactly what he means By the love they had at first, or their first love. But the most likely explanation is that they have lost their love towards God and towards others. What what we often refer to as the great commandment. Jesus is at one point in his life asked, Jesus, what's the great, you know, teacher, what's the great commandment? What's the greatest commandment? And Jesus doesn't give them one, he gives them two. He He says, to love the Lord your God with everything you've got, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And so they say, what's the greatest one? And he gives them two. And he, he ties them together forever for the people of God to wrestle with this reality. To, to love God, to genuinely love God is to love other people. In, in 1 John, we're told that if you don't love your brother, then how can you love God? You're, you're, not, you're a liar. That, that's rooted in this, this, this statement from Jesus where Jesus says, what's the greatest commandment? Well, it's to love God and your, and your neighbor as yourself. That's the call. And so it appears that that's what's been lost They were a cold church. What some have called dead orthodoxy. And look, it's not that they were inactive. No, Jesus commended their works. He said, I I looked at your works and thumbs up. And the problem was not that they were committed to the truth. Jesus was committed to the truth. Jesus was a truth guy. Truly, truly, verily, verily, I say to you. Jesus was a truth guy, but Jesus was a truth guy who was saturated with love. And it appears that Ephesus once had this, but that fire, that love for God has cooled, and now it might even be gone. You see, the church at Ephesus had clear minds and active hands, but cold hearts And you might want this to be simpler. You might might want this to be like they just had good doctrine, but they sat around in a holy huddle and didn't do anything. That's not the indication. The indication is actually that they had active hands, clear minds, active hands, but cold hearts. Their desires were off, their affections were off, their motivations were off. They had good doctrine. Stood for what was true, stood for what was right. They had good works, but their hearts were cold. Now, it's easy to judge. It's easy to judge the Ephesian church. Maybe you could say, like, how could this happen? Well, let me throw out two possible options, and there could be a lot. But one could be, remember all that suffering? Remember how Jesus looked at them and said, you've toiled, patient endurance. Have you ever seen what suffering can do to, to people? They, this church has been suffering and they have suffered for a long time. And suffering can make love really hard. <clears throat> and maybe you've been there. If you have been there, then you know. You know what it's like to endure long Journeys, Long Suffering. There's a, a book that years ago, before we had a book wall, we used to just sell, like a couple times a year, we would have a book table and uh, just pick a few uh, titles. And one year we picked this, it's a real little book, but it was titled Wrestling with an Angel. And that book was written by a police officer who had had a son who had a significant disability. And he wrote this book and he's telling the story that as his son was growing Older and getting bigger, uh, this man began to realize that he was also growing older. His son was getting stronger, and he was getting weaker. And he began to realize that this son was going to need care for his entire life. And the police officer began to 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 to, to that, used, that that began to weigh on him. This this reality of what what are the next ten years going to be like? What what's going to happen when I when I can't restrain him? What's going to happen when he's stronger than me? One of the things that he says in that book is that he had always heard that God will not give you more than you can handle. And he's like, that's actually not been my experience. And it's not what I read on the pages of the Bible. It seems like God gives you more than you can handle in order that you might actually see him more clearly. That, that God actually has situations where He allows that to happen, where the suffering actually boils over. And you could see why that would make love hard. You could see why, maybe through the patient endurance, the long toil, it would make it hard to keep your heart warm. And maybe for this church, it's just become obligation. Maybe because they've got good doctrine, they keep doing the right things, but all the suffering, has made love really, really hard. So maybe, before you hammer the sin, maybe we should try to understand the sufferer. Another cause could be insecurity. Insecurity almost makes love impossible because insecurity makes it all about you. If the way that you're interacting with the God of heaven is based in a a, a lack of clarity on how it is that you relate to the God of heaven, how it is that you have standing with the God of heaven, then you make everything in your relationship with God all about you. Everything that you do for God is is self-justification. Everything you do for God is actually to try to position yourself. It's trying to make you feel better about you. It's trying to earn something from God. It's this transaction between you and the God of heaven. And when that's happening, everything gets distorted. One of the things that can easily get distorted is comparison. Is instead of understanding Jesus as the ultimate human, that the person who you are following and modeling your life after, you begin to look horizontally. And you begin to look at other people. And you begin to say, well, I I volunteer more than they volunteer. I'm more consistent in church than they are. I do more good deeds than they do. I give more money than they do. I say less cuss words than they say. Comparison. Maybe that's what's happening with this church. They're looking around and they're seeing all the other churches fade, all the other churches give in to the culture. They're not standing up to the Nicolaitans. We are. They're not doing good deeds. We are. And that can almost make love impossible. Instead of being filled with the love of Christ, they're filled with their ego. Because they don't, they've forgotten. They've forgotten that Christ wins it for them. They've forgotten that Christ wins the smile of God for them. They don't earn it. It's a grace gift. It's something generously provided by the person and work of Jesus. Okay, so maybe suffering, maybe insecurity, maybe one, maybe both. Regardless of the cause, they were a cold church, and Jesus calls it out. Well, what's his instruction? We see this in verses five and seven. J- Jesus calls this out, but he doesn't leave them there. And just, you know, can we just celebrate together the comfort of Jesus, the kindness of Jesus? He starts off by looking at their works and saying, Man, can I celebrate this? Can I celebrate your toil? Can I celebrate your patient endurance? Can I celebrate your stance for truth? Now, here, I want, I want, to, want to bring this to your attention. This is an area you need to work on. But then right back, he does not leave them there. Listen to the the first half of verse 5. So verse 4, you've abandoned the love that you had at first. Verse 5, remember therefore from where you've fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Jesus looks at them and he says, I want you to remember to repent and to do. Now we're going to talk about this in a minute, but this is no small thing. Because Jesus goes on to say that if their lack of love continues, they risk being removed. So so this is no small thing, but Jesus gives them a roadmap. And he says, remember, repent, and do. Look at yourselves. Look at yourselves honestly. Remember where you were. Experience the love of Christ again. The love that sustains you and fills your doctrine. That, That doctrine that you're holding so tightly to. It fills it with joy. How to do that? Remember, repent and do the deeds you did at first. Repent means to turn. It means to turn from distortions, it means to turn from sin. See what's going wrong in your life and turn back to Christ and to his overwhelming love. Biblical repentance is not an invitation to stop doing bad things and just start doing good things. It's to stop doing bad things and turn yourself back to Christ. To, to see him again, to turn back to him. And that's what Jesus says, turn back to me. He says, remember, remember the joy you had. Remember the joy you had in Christ when you first realized that Jesus loves you more than you can imagine. There's a way to think about this, almost like if, if you've ever been in a, in a relationship, if, you, if, you're, if you've been married, my wife and I are gonna hit 22 years this year. It's like, you can look back and you can remember all of that puppy love—you can remember all of that. You, know, uh, you remember uh, Bambi, Twitter-pated, I think Twitter-pated. You know, all that, all that eagerness, all that excitement, all that joy. <clears throat> In a sense, Jesus is looking at the church at Ephesus and he's saying, "Guess what? That wasn't naive. It wasn't naive to be like that with me. When you first saw my love, when you first saw how great this gospel was, it wasn't naive to respond like that." Here's what happened. The roots didn't go deep enough. You, you didn't foster the roots. You, you didn't feed the tree. It wasn't wrong to think of me like that. It wasn't wrong to be so enamored with who I am and what I've done. That, that, that puppy love, that initial, that those initial emotions, th- those weren't naive. They needed to be fostered. Remember. And then he says, do the works that you used to do. Go back to doing with Jesus what you used to do. Do them filled with the love that you had in the beginning. These, these, these works, these, these, uh, the works that you did at the beginning, I mean, it might be regularly spending time with God in prayer and in the scriptures. It might be gathering with God's people. I think maybe all of us have seen the stats. Church attendance is in the toilet, uh, especially since COVID, but even before COVID, the, the, the trend of church engagement of the people of God gathering with the people of God that, that, is, that, that, that uh, statistic is, is headed in the wrong direction. That, that, that might be something that Jesus was inviting them to, was like, don't forget the gathering of yourselves together in, in honest, real, genuine community. It might be a call to, to serving others with sacrificial joy. Not just doing it, but doing it with joy. In other words, it, it could be that Jesus is just saying, how about some spiritual habits, church at Ephesus? How about some spiritual practices? You know, they've been the historic answer. When the church has looked at revival throughout the course of its history, the answer has been usually regular, consistent rhythms with God and his people. It's not crazy stuff. It's regular stuff that has led to the, to the revivals throughout church history. You know, Lent. Lent is three days away. What, what, what an invitation. What a great time to ask these kinds of questions. Where does Jesus want me to change? It's an invitation to repentance. What prayer scripture rhythms do I want to commit to during these 40 days? What would be hard for me to give up? How am I going to have some rhythms of fasting? They, these are spiritual disciplines, spiritual habits that the church has turned to for, thousands, for 2,000 years. Now you might ask, and this would be a really good question, can spiritual habits really renew and revive my life with Jesus? And the answer is no. They can't by themselves, no. Habits cannot do that. But here's what they can do. They put you in the way of it. So there's an illustration that I've used for years now. But think of yourself as a cup in a sink. And the faucet is running. The water is pouring out of the faucet. Spiritual disciplines are like scooting your cup over to the faucet so that the water actually fills up your cup. That's what spiritual disciplines are. They're not turning on the faucet. They're not creating the water. They're just simply aligning you. They're scooting you over into the stream of God's mercy, into the faucet that's already turned on, the gifts that God wants to pour out on you. It's just getting in the way of it. Remember back in verse 1 of this chapter, Jesus is among the churches. He's walking among the churches. He's there. He is present. You know what language this is trying to bring back to our minds? The language of Genesis. When Jesus walked in the garden, when Jesus was with Adam and Eve in the cool of the morning, and he was present with them, Jesus here at the end of the Bible is saying to his people, I'm still walking among you. I'm still present here. I, I'm around, I'm present, I'm walking among you. You see, the point is that Jesus doesn't want his church, he doesn't want his church to miss him. It's not about practices and it's not about schedules. Jesus doesn't want us to miss him. He is the point, not something beyond him. Jesus isn't the means to something else. Jesus is the, he's the end. He's the point. And then Jesus points to this consequence. He says, if if, if you don't cling to that love, then you risk being removed as a lampstand, being removed as a church. I, I don't have time to get into this, but listen. Sojourn's getting ready to celebrate their 100th anniversary. But God does not need Sojourn Church. God didn't need the church in Ephesus. God invites us to be part of his mission, and he invites us to align ourselves with what he's doing in the world. But there are certain circumstances by which Jesus removes that church. And Jesus here is saying that your love is that essential. That if you're missing that, you're missing something so core. But don't miss what Jesus promises to those who do cling to that first love. To those he calls the overcomers. Here's the promise. For those who overcome. For those who cling to their first love. They get to eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God. More Genesis language. We see the tree of life in the first chapters of Genesis. Then we see sin show up in Genesis chapter 3 and God remove uh, humanity from the garden so that they didn't eat from the tree of life. So that they would not live forever in the condition of sin. But now Jesus has come to solve the sin problem. And now he says, for all of you who cling to that first love, all of you who cling to love, cling to me. You get to eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God. Man, th- th- this, is, this is the message of Revelation, is that there is a new kingdom that is coming and it's not far off. When Jesus shows up, he says, repent and believe the gospel. The kingdom is at hand. It is close, brothers and sisters. It is close. The paradise of God is close. And Jesus, in his grace, is not only commending the church, but he's critiquing the church. And then he's offering a pathway forward so that we get to be part of this, so that you get to be part of this, so that you are invited in. We get to be with him forever. You see, it's like Jesus is saying this, and I'll I'll close with this Don't be a Christian just to be a Christian. Don't be a Christian just because you think it'll give you purpose or it'll give you tools for handling handling your life. Whether those things are true or not, the fundamental reason to follow Jesus is because Jesus is beautiful, because he loves you and you love him. Nothing else is going to sustain you. That's what Jesus is saying. Church at Ephesus, you're, you're, you're doing these really good things, but without love, it'll never sustain you without that first love, without clinging to what I've done for you and what you are, and your response to that, without clinging to that, it'll never sustain. It'll never last. Jesus uses this language many times in these, few, in these few chapters. But he says, whoever has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. You know what that means? That means if, if, if something's stirring in your heart right now, do not suppress that. Do not ignore that. If, if something's bubbling up about what you need to repent of, what you need to remember, what good works you need to do, that you've lost your first love, if any of that stuff is bubbling up, don't suppress that. Jesus is saying, if the Spirit's at work in you, if you have an ear to hear, don't ignore it. Whoever has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Well, one of the ways that we experience the welcome of Jesus the, uh, the, the smile of God upon us is that we come to the table and we eat the bread and we drink the cup. And while we do it at stations currently, uh, it is a, it, the picture is that you're welcome to the table. That because of what Jesus has done for you, he's actually won you a seat at the table of God. At the great and grand meal that God offers his people. And so today, uh, we're going to uh, pray. And then as the music plays, you have a few minutes. Uh, and as you come to the table... Celebrate the fact of what Jesus has done for you. Let's pray. Our service, please come. God, thank you for this, <clears throat> this good news. This good news of a Christ who sees us and who affirms us, who commends us, who is not ignorant to our, to our toil, to our endurance, to our trials, to the times that we're trying to be faithful to, to, to the, what, what, what you say on the pages of the Bible. Jesus is not missing those things. Thank you for that. God, would you also give us hearts to actually be, be willing to thank you for your critique. For being willing to poke around in maybe soft spots or sensitive places. About what our actual motivations are. What our desires are. How aligned our hearts are with, with, with the good news of the gospel. With this recognition that Christ has won for us the most important thing that could ever be won. God, would you give us humility? Would you give us a willingness to, to turn from, from lesser things and turn back to Christ and to cling to that first love? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.